Welcome to Meet the Filmmakers at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Please welcome our guest moderator, Jamie Graham. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's my great honour to be here tonight at the Apple Store to introduce a film that I personally am a big fan of and many other critics are a big fan of. Um, got rave reviews when it came out. All this mayhem, skateboard documentary. I don't know if we have any skaters in the uh, audience tonight, but whether you know the world inside out or whether you know nothing about it, this is a movie that really draws you in. It's very much a human story, a rise and fall story. It's energetic, it's got drugs, it's got women, it's got ego, all the things that we kind of are attracted to on screen. At the moment, we're in a great era of documentaries, I feel, in the last 10 years or so, certainly for theatrical releases at the cinema, we've, um, we've had a real influx and people have really warmed to these stories. This, for my mind, is one of the best of the last few years, really deserves to break out and be a major hit. Um, so without further ado, I'm gonna show you the trailer in case any of you haven't seen the film yet. And then after the trailer, we'll introduce some talent to the stage. Thank you. I want the Pappas brothers to be remembered as just maniacs. Growing up, it was pretty hectic. It was me and Ben against the world. We're always looking for a rush, smashing things or finding a stolen car. Everyone does, don't they? Didn't they? Had these huge dreams. Gone all America. Got a smash walk. Who are these guys? They were powerhouses. They just killed all the contests. The best in the world right now. They're just going for it. Whoa! We just didn't want the party to end. Those guys went nuts. Was that enough to beat Tony Hawk? They did a really good job at burning bridges. Hawk, you're over. They became impossible to deal with. Right there, it was when it started to go sour. I was shut out. ESPN and the X Games ran the whole show. Turned into like a personal war. And there were casualties. Ben Pappas will never be allowed back into the United States to compete. I was shattered. I felt like I failed him. I realized right then and there who I was up against. There's three sides to every story. My side, your side, and the truth. I was forced to face my issues. I think those guys belong in the history books. It's time to try to kick the doors open again for me and Ben. My turn. This is for you. You reap what you sow. Pretty much karma. So, there we go. Well, with us tonight, we have the producer of the film, Mr. George Pank, and we have the editor, Mr. Chris King. Please join me in welcoming, welcoming them to the stage. Sorry. Hello. Hi. So, this is George and this is Chris. So, f- 
First of all, guys, for people in the audience who maybe haven't yet seen the movie, which is coming out on Blu-ray and DVD soon, just for a little plug there for you, but could you maybe just tell them what it's about? We've obviously seen the trailer, but if you had to give it a quick pitch, a quick rundown, how would you describe it? I'd say it's, a, um, it's really a, a Shakespearean story of brotherhood uh, set in the weird and wonderful world of pro skateboarding in the 90s. So obviously the two brothers we're talking about, brotherhood here, are Tuss and Ben Pappas, who are Australian, Greek-Australian skaters, came over to America, took the scene by storm, went up against the mighty Tony Hawk. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, yeah, they came from um, they came from the western suburbs of Melbourne, and um, they were both kind of into martial arts and sort of just young, sort of tearaway kids. And they discovered skating; and they had huge talent. And uh, skateboarding at that time, there was there was kind of the influence of Californian culture coming into Australia, and it had its moment when it really boomed. But um, it was a small scene in Australia, and you know the internet and stuff wasn't really around so it was even more isolated but these kids just had incredible talent and then they got sent to america very young and they just had uh, you know they had they took on the world and they were able to you know beat tony hawk and change the sport because they brought at that time there was two movements in skating there was like vertical ramp skating and then there was street skating and street skating was really on the rise with a lot of progressions in that but vert skating was kind of dying. And these guys took the best of, you know, the new progression in street skating, applied it to the ramp, went to America and, you know, turned it upside down. So, Chris, can you tell us how you came to be involved with this? Because obviously you've worked on some great documentaries before, Exit Through the Gift Shop, Senna, Made in Stone. I mean, this is directed by Eddie Martin. Did he come to you and because of your previous work, you were the man for this? Uh, no, actually it was George. Because uh, George, I think, did some work. You did some work on Exit through the gift shop, didn't you? And it was towards the end of that. Uh, I think we were at a viewing somewhere in a basement, a few glasses of wine down. And George just grabbed me and said, I've got to tell you the story of these two brothers from Australia. And the way he pitched it to me was much better than he has done just now, I have to say. And maybe it was because he'd had too much to drink as well. But it was the idea that there were these two foul-mouthed, punk, gnarly little kids who who just took no prisoners and who went to America and swore at the, everyone else on the ramps, pushed them off, everyone hated them, and yet they were prodigiously talented and, and won everything. And then at the height of their success, they were separated. They were almost like twins, and then they were separated, and their paths continued, but apart from one another, and neither of them could cope. And immediately he told me that, I started to see it in those Shakespearean terms, that it was a story of brotherhood, separated, but in this very strange sort of subculture of skating, which I don't really know anything about. I skated as a kid, but the idea of doing a film about it, it was sort of nothing to do with my own personal experience of it as a child. Um, but I was in enormously enthused by the idea of these these mad brothers being separated, and I'm not going to spoil the ending for anybody, but... They're, they're separate paths that occasionally bump into each other in, in the later part of their lives uh, become increasingly tragic for both of them. Uh, and it's mostly that part of the story that interested me. Skating is fun, but honestly, when you have to watch quite a lot of it, it you know, takes its toll on you as an editor, I have to say. 
Okay, we've mentioned the Mad Brothers and the journey they go on, but let's go back to the start of that. We've got a clip we're going to show now, which is towards the start of the documentary, when the brothers are still in Australia, they're young kids, they're just starting out. So let's have a look at this couple of minutes. I was down at a Paran one day. It was probably like 11 or 12. And these kids padded up and just started from the bottom. It looked like they've never even stepped on a board before. They just got on the ramp and started pumping, going quarter of the way up, halfway up the ramp. They didn't give two shits if someone said them to get off the ramp. They'd just go and have a skate. You could see they were pretty hard, you know. And I found out they were called Benatus. We were, like, young as fuck. Then we came to Param, which is on the rich side of Melbourne. We were just normal kids brought up in a physical kind of atmosphere. You know, like having rock wars and climbing construction sites and houses that are being built. And I saw the vert ramp and I was just mesmerised by the fact that people could fly through the air and that took over. We were bogans. There's bogans in every country. I think in uh, America they call them Hessians or white trash. They'd be the American bogan. In Australia it's just called a bogan. But it's more the rougher suburb type. I grew up in suburbia, half Greek, half Aussie. Sort of rough. Growing up, it was pretty hectic as far as mum and dad went. Like, they tried to be together and cool, but there was just fights every night. Mum was hardcore. I mean, they had a fight, they got into it. And then she's screaming and I was like freaking out. Like, don't hit mum. And then, Mum would come back with a big glass ashtray, smash Dad in the head, and then he's laid out on the floor with blood coming out of his head. I'm like, ah, oh, Dad's dead. That's the sort of things we saw growing up. Me and Ben would always be going at it with each other, smashing each other. And we learned martial arts as kids. Yeah, I was in Kung Fu when I was five. They had to take me out of it because I started smashing all the grade fives when I was in grade one. Just thought I was Bruce Lee. See, my dad and my Uncle Willie had a jiu-jitsu school. And the first thing Uncle Willie taught us was all the pressure points. Temples, eyes, behind the ears, throat, up the nose, down the chin. And he's teaching us all these death strikes. Then he'd tell us in class, like, right, now what are you going to do? <laughs> so there we go. So Chris, I mean, we saw there, we've got some wonderful archive footage, we've got still photography. As an editor, I imagine you must have got so much material chucked at you, because skaters, they tend to record everything they do. Mm. You must have had thousands and thousands of feet of footage. How do you even begin to take that and marshal it into a 90-minute narrative? Well, you have to have a good story in the first place. And thankfully, the story that these guys, their, their life, basically, uh, was already there. So really, you're, we didn't have that much footage, actually, I have to say. I mean, we had m hundreds of hours, but it wasn't thousands of hours. And I've done films where we've had thousands and thousands of hours. Senna, we had five to 10,000 hours. Uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop, we had several hundred. We, had, we went to the thousands, I think, on that. So we were in the, we were in the, the hundreds on this. But as long as you know what your story is, uh, you begin to go through it systematically, watch 
everything, which, as I mentioned earlier, can be a bit of a struggle because skateboarders, the, the people that do the filming for skateboarders are called videographers, and their whole uh, game is to follow the skateboarders around and watch them nail a trick. And it's probably on one day they say they're going to do a trick. And there are thousands of attempts where they go up and down the same ramp or they go down the same piece of street, try it, hit the dirt, try it, hit the dirt, try ad nauseum for hours and hours and hours. And on a vert ramp in a cutting room, we were sat there literally doing this all day. Splash. <laughs> Splash. And I had to go fast forward, obviously. And then finally, you'd find a little bit at the end where there was a conversation where they had the camera running still and they'd have a little chat on the ramp. And that's the bit I was interested in. And I'd put that in a little bin and then carry on searching through. <clears throat> and once you've gone through all the material, the hundreds and hundreds of hours doing that, then you can begin to piece it together and you think, well, there's that aspect of the story. What am I going to need to tell that part of the story? You know, their childhood, for instance, we didn't have anything. We found out we had some stills. We don't generally like using stills because it's a bit like, you know, a PowerPoint presentation. But the stills were so exciting and so dynamic and they really showed the, the, that part of their lives as doing kung fu and beating each other up and, and very funny stories of their childhood. And it was very evocative. So we decided to use bits and pieces like that as well. And you just do it section by section, building up your script. It's actually, it is a bit like writing a script as you're going along when you're cutting a film like this. You don't really, you, you know ultimately where you're going to go, but scene by scene, it's almost like thinking, well, where should we take the audience next? What are they going to know? What do they want to know next? What's the most exciting way to transition to the next part of the film? What have we got to tell that? And quite often you'd find out, well, we don't actually have anything to tell that part of the story yet at all. So then you go to your researchers and you send them out to try and chase people down, the people that you've got existing footage of, have they got any more, do they know anyone? And you'd often, I mean, skaters weren't the most reliable of contacts, you have to say, they're all stoned and they'd say, oh, yeah, I think I might have something, give me a couple of months. And we go, don't really have a couple of months, but about two or three days, oh man, I've got to get out of bed in that time. And anyway, the word would go around and bits and pieces would come in and, and so gradually, bit by bit, the holes get filled and you, you get to a cut. And during this long, arduous process, how does Eddie get involved with this? Because he's obviously the director. Is he kind of sat on your, on your shoulder overlooking Absolutely. the whole thing? Absolutely. I mean, Eddie is the director. He's the guide to all this material. I don't have a clue who any of the characters were at this stage. I mean, apart from Tass and Ben, I don't know who any of the other... And Tony Hawk. <coughs> I don't know who any of the other guys are. And Eddie was conducting all the interviews. He'd been conducting interviews with Tass for uh, two years, I think, before I even got involved in the project, uh, while Tass was still in prison. Uh, so, yeah, so he's there guiding through, he knows the story intimately um, and you know, there is an element of handing it over to uh, your editor and trusting that they're going to find a new angle into it or be able to decipher it. I mean that's one thing. My job as an editor as well as putting the thing together is to act as an audience member to say, do I understand this part of the story? Do, would I get that if I was sitting in the cinema or, or if I was pressing play at home, would I understand what he's trying to say at this part of the film? Is that part of the story interesting? Should we really be going in some other direction that he hasn't thought of? So it's very much a kind of conversation, and it's a collaboration, more so in documentary than in fiction, in, in, definitely. So, George, I want to ask you this one. We just saw a clip of Tuss speaking straight to camera. There's quite a lot of that in the documentary. And one of the reasons the doc is so good is he is such an amazing character. He's off the wall, he's really funny, he's just completely madcap. 
I mean, was that the main attraction to you right from the start, this guy at the centre of it, or the kind of eye of the storm, as it were? Um, not... Well, in a, if I'm honest with you, like, because coming at it from the producing point of view and having worked on Exit, um, when Eddie told me the story, I knew the Pappas Brothers growing up. I was into skateboarding and they were, you know, they were kind of stars that you sort of... They were doing things, going to America that you were amazed by but they were but um i could when eddie told me the story it, the whole thing was very interesting but at that point i'd never actually met tuss and he was in prison at the time and um it, you know w once we once we engaged with him it then just he was a bit like an engine in a way for the project because he's got so much presence that he just drove it forward but it was more the overall story that, that, you know, rather than really knowing that he had that kind of charisma, but it just became apparent quickly. He's got, you know, he's a force of nature. I mean, that was sure. one of the conversations that Eddie and I had quite early when we were watching it. Everything was filmed, and he'd filmed a lot of material around their, uh, the, the suburb that they were brought up in, um, and Tuss had taken him back to the house where he was born and so on, and done some fairly traditional documentary kind of actuality, observational kind of filming. Uh, and I said, well, I think really the story is, there, is the backstory. Is the story, it's not really now what it's like post-prison, which is what he was experiencing. It's the story of their brothers together and their trip to America and that experience. The moment he showed me the interviews that he conducted and Tuss started to talk and he was so electric, we just thought, okay, he is center stage on this. He, we have to give him screen time. I mean, in, in Senna, for instance, we had no talking head interviews whatsoever. We recorded interviews, but we decided not to show the faces of the people being interviewed at all and just stay in the moment, in the real time of the archive footage. And we had a temptation to try and do that with this as well. But as soon as Tass appeared on screen in the cutting room, we said, no, forget that. He's got to be center stage. And then we adjusted all the other interviews to match that as well. But yeah, and he is a, he's a firecracker. And he is inten so intelligent and compelling and raw and honest. You don't see very many people who are prepared to open themselves up as much as he is. Okay, we mentioned earlier that this is a kind of flight of Icarus story and obviously the brothers are torn apart. So we're now going to move to our second clip, which kind of takes, takes place at the moment when it all begins to go wrong. So let's have a look at this one. It turned kind of ugly really fast. I started thinking, this is crap. Is this really what skateboarding's all about? Just backstabbing bullshit over money? Like, I hated it and Ben hated it. We'd be talking and Ben says, you know, I can't handle the fakeness over here. So he decided to go home for a while. We dropped Ben off at LAX. So I slept in, then I woke up to the phone ringing and it was Ben at uh, Melbourne airport. And all I heard Ben say was, Tuss, I fucked up. Ben Pappas was arrested at Melbourne Airport after his credit card triggered a high cocaine reading. X-rays of his sneakers revealed 103 grams of cocaine with a street value of more than $50,000 concealed in the sole. Ben Pappas and his brother Taz are youth sensations, idolised in the United States where skaters rub shoulders with rock stars. The pair is ranked one and two in the world, but such heights are now likely to elude Ben Pappas 
after he was caught smuggling cocaine into Melbourne. As imports go, it was only a small amount, just over 100 grams for his own personal use. But importing the drug is punishable by a hefty fine or, at worst, a term in prison. Whatever happens to him, it's almost certain that Ben Pappas will never be allowed back into the United States to compete. That was just bloody the most shattering phone call because I knew Ben couldn't come back. And that shattered me like I cried and... I just couldn't believe it. Took the paper and it just was Ben Pappas just, like, busted at um, Melbourne Airport for, you know, cocaine um, in his shoe. And you just thought, like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you, you're blowing it. My jaw pretty much dropped. I thought he was in the motivation to become number one. I didn't think it was like Ben to do that, you know, like bring it over. You know, I used to get along with Ben back in the day, so, you know, I kind of really felt for him, you know, at the time. And I, you know, I wanted to see him get through it. Being pro skaters who were traveling a lot, people always propositioned each other. I imagine we just brought it from here because it's so much cheaper, but, you know not to run them across borders. It's just the payoff is not big enough. So in some ways, this is a kind of age-old story of young men who get very famous, find stardom, take to drugs, party and go a bit crazy. You know, it's a bit of a Goodfellas, a bit of a Wolf of Wall Street. But the other side of it is the fact that these brothers are torn apart right from the start when they go to America. They're outsiders, they're treated as such. How much do you think that side of it is responsible for what happened with the downfall in the later stages of the film? Uh, sorry, can I just say, I, I think it's also worth noting that what these guys got sponsored when they were, how old were they, 11, 12? Yep. They went on a tour around that time, 11, 12-year-olds, in a tour bus with the most notorious Californian skateboard team, the Alva team, who were the most hedonistic, reckless bunch of guys, well-known all over the place for rampant coke and drug use. And they were in hotels rooms with these 30-year-old guys, big piles of coke on the table, 12-year-old boys, yeah, do you want some? Yeah, join in. They thought from that age, that was what you did to get on in pro skateboarding. That was the lesson they'd learned. So really, it's no surprise that when they actually rose through the ranks and became the number one and the number two in the world, only six years later, seven years later, that they would adopt those same habits. Uh, it isn't just an Icarus story where they got there and then suddenly it's like, wow, I've got loads of money and I'm just going to burn it all. And you know, it was inculcated into them that that was the accepted way of becoming successful in this world. Anyway, you can answer the rest of the question. I think also with, um, you know, it, it's, it's part of the real attraction of these brothers is their kind of rawness and their... Uh, their they're, you know, they're honest, they're raw, they kind of call a spade a spade, as we'd say in Australia, and that does clash up against the American culture, and I think that that did cause them, prob you know, a lot of problems. I mean, there's a lot more to it, and I think, you know, it's one of the questions when you watch the film, like, I think right at the end, Tuss says, you know, skateboarding is a gift, it took us away from crap in St Albans, but somehow we got sucked back in, and, you know, it's that idea of, like, you know, that your, your past catches up with you or where you're from can tie you back in. But there's that, but then there's also just that amazing rawness of the Australian kind of, at least in a 
maybe in a cliched, maybe in an iconic sense, but there's that rawness and they both embody that. Tuss to this day, he's still like, he's raw, you know, and it causes him problems, but it's also the greatest thing about him, you know. The other thing about it, I mean, drugs represented, I suppose, for them, a sense of uh, anarchy and rebellion. Uh, and there were two distinct sides of skateboarding. There was the Alva side and the rebellious side, which was very much that skateboarding can take place anywhere. All you need is a skateboard and you can do it. Versus a much more corporate side of skateboarding, which was beginning to grow at the time when they were rising through the ranks and getting to the number one spots in the, uh, in the scene which was dominated by Tony Hawk, which was getting TV sponsorship from ESPN and from some of the big American uh, TV channels. And that was very clean cut. And they hated all that. And they had to participate in it, but they hated it. They thought skating's for kids who just want to, you know, most of the people they knew who skated were slightly odd, outsiders, gnarly. They didn't fit in. They were punky. They were rebels. And they saw themselves as that. The drug use... It was just part of it, really. They just thought that was just sort of part of the, the slightly underground, anarchic scene that they were... You know, lots of subcultures have drugs in it. It doesn't define the scene. It's just a, a factor in most of those kind of subcultures. OK, you've mentioned Tony Hawk, who in this film, he comes across as a bit of a dick, I have to say, that he does kind of represent the corporate America and he becomes very much an arch-rival to particularly Tuss. So we're going to now have a look at a little clip which kind of sums up their relationship in four beautiful minutes. So have a look at this one. He was so close, landing on him, almost making it. And we had a couple of people from Transworld magazine come and shoot sequences of Tuss. Yeah. He's going to do it, Grant. You want bet 100? Grant Britton, he's an old-school photographer who works for Transworld, who's shot Hawk for years. He's shot all his photos. They've been mates for years. I just thought, oh, yeah, sick. Grant's being cool again. Oh! You gotta get him the free run. You got what? Get him over there when he's hyping up. Yeah! Yeah! yeah. He almost made it. He was like way high, way high in the air and just like almost making him. It was pretty. He was like a legit 900. He heard that everyone at Transworld seemed like Hawk and everyone was going to look at his sequences. The Hawkman, everyone went and studied his work. It was just about there and I was thinking it was on and then I was thinking that's it, I'll do it at the 99X games. <laughs> From Melbourne, Australia, mate, it's Tusk Puppis and Chris, just from watching him in practice, after being gone from pro skating for a little while, the man is on a mission. Uh, this guy's just been going off all day today and all day yesterday in practice. He's on fire, man. He even has so much confidence going right now. I want to see the 900. Phenomenal. And you know, I think he's going to save that maybe for the best trick contest if he's in it. Tuss and Bill were just super psyched because it was the best trick contest. But for some reason, they didn't let Tuss skate. I've done the comp, this and that. I've been doing all right. And Don Bostic's like, oh, you're not in the best trick comp this year, Tuss. And I, what do you mean? I've been in every best trick comp all year for the last few years. Why just out of nowhere, just this one? They said, oh, yeah, you're not in it. I said, well, who is in it? Tony Hawk! Tony Hawk!
It's the 900. You guys want to see that? And then the best trick comp started, and then I saw Hawk start trying nines. And I was just like, no way. 900! Hust was devastated because that was it. He, if he would have entered that contest, he would have did it because he's that kind of skater. I thought, what a you know, weasel maneuver. At least give me a chance. You know, he, he probably would have beat me to it, but at least could have had a shot for shot for it. You know what I mean? When Tony Hawk did the 900, I was there. I witnessed it. You know, like, uh, I didn't think it was all that impressive compared to what I saw Tusk doing. I know he would have at least tried it. I don't know if he would have nailed it, but he would have tried it. And, and it would have made Tony Hawk's 900 less impressive. <laughs> well, for you people, I would have never made that. Thank you. Thank you. This is the best day of my life. I swear to God. I realized right then and there who I was up against. It didn't matter how good I was or how close I was getting to something, it was just stuff ya. Piss off home, Aussie. So, like I said earlier, um, Tony Hawk doesn't come out of this particularly well. I'm very interested to know, did you guys approach him and actually say, we want you in the movie, we want your side of the story? Because he is a little bit conspicuous by his absence. Yeah, I mean, it w it's... With someone like Tony Hawk, who's, uh, you know, he's a, obviously a successful sportsman, but a successful businessman, and it's not completely straightforward just being able to contact him, but we made a number of different approaches, and, um, yeah, we just, he wasn't interested. He, ha he still dislikes Tuss. They had a number of run-ins. Tuss was very rude to him pretty much every time they met and I uh, was dismissive of him, slagged him off all over the place, took the piss out of him all the time, in a very funny way. I mean, him and Ben, when they became number one and two in the world, Hawk, who was competing against them that year, went up to them afterwards and complained to them, said, well, I don't think you should have won that. And of course, they just turned on him and told him to go away. Actually, I think we should say on this stage here. <coughs> they were very, very, very rude to him and he just loathed them, basically. He loathed everything they represented and the run-ins continued beyond this point all the way down the line. And I think when, he, when approached, he just didn't even answer the emails. He had no interest at all in doing anything that was at all to do with the Papas brothers. Their memory, whether alive or dead, showed no interest whatsoever. I mean, I think, he, actually, wasn't it in Sydney? Tuss went up to him, tried to kind of patch things up a little bit and at least speak to him and just say, hi, Tony, do you remember me? And he, even 10 years after these events, he turned his back on him and walked away. Just wouldn't even look him in the eye. So no, we, were, we were shooting. Um, so when Tusk got out, of, he got out of prison in November. And in January of that year, uh, there's a music festival in Australia, The Big Day Out. And they have always had a skate demo. And Hawk was the headline act for the skate demo. And we tried f to see whether Tusk would be able to skate there. And... He was allowed after some time, but only on condition that he left the ramp area when Tony Hawk skated, so, yeah. 
yeah, there's certainly no love lost. And we were, it was a shame. We'd have loved to have heard his input on, on everything. You know, it, it, it's, it, was a, it was a pity that his voice wasn't in the film. We'd have loved to have it, but he declined. So in a minute, I'm going to hand over for a few audience questions. So I really hope you guys have got some lined up. But just a couple more before we do, so you can prep. Um, I'd just be interested to know what Tuss is doing now, because for people who have seen the documentary, it obviously ends, what, 2012, is it? That it kind of concludes? Yeah, so since then, obviously, we'd like to know what he's up to. I do know that he actually nailed the 900, didn't he, quite recently? Yeah, he, he landed the 900 on... Um Australia Day, I think, and uh, so that that was a big monkey on his back. Pretty awesome that he he did that. But um, he actually broke his rib yesterday skateboarding. So I spoke to him last night, and he was, oh yeah, nah, it's just my rib, mate. It doesn't matter, you know. Nah, nah. But he's you know he's still skating really hard. He's um, potentially uh, in the film. There's a company called H Street, which is one of the early skate brands, which is no longer around, but they're uh, Tony Magnuson, an uh, ex-professional skateboarder, company owner. He's bringing it back, and potentially Tuss is going to, you know, have his an, his own board on H Street. Um, he's cleaning windows, high-rise buildings, so he's on he's out in the abseil cleaning windows, which is good for. He he said it was a good job for him because his knees. He was he was doing a job before uh, in a warehouse, which was really hard on his knees because they're kind of like bone on bone. He's he's had so many injuries, but um. So he's, he's, he's working, he's, um, you know, his little boy Billy is skating really well and he's still, you know, he's still just 100 miles an hour going for it, yeah. And final question, I mean, he must have seen the finished film. What did he actually make of it? And while you were making it, how much input did he have? Like, did he see early cuts and sort of say, oh, can you shift this around a bit or make me look a bit better here? Or No, thankfully he was in Australia and we were in Dalston when that process was taking place. So he had a limited amount of input. But he was in regular contact. We'd Skype. I mean, Eddie and he would Skype in the evening. I didn't tend to talk to him very much, uh, which he took to be a sign of my snootiness, I have to say. He'd say, ooh, Mr. Big Shirt. Um, but, no, he was completely happy with the... With the the film. I don't think he had any objections to it whatsoever, uh, did he? I remember because it was difficult for Tuss because when Eddie was over with Chris and they were cutting for, they cut for seven months uh, over here in Dalston and, you know, Tuss, as you can imagine, is sort of, you know, what are you doing with my, I want to see it, what are you doing with my life? And we came to a point where we were, we were comfortable with the film and we showed him a rough cut and I remember I was speaking to him that week and he was really on edge and he was like, mate, because obviously this film, Chris edited the film Senna and James Gay Reese produced Senna. So it was kind of uh, a lot of the elements of the Senna team were making it. And Tuss said to me, he goes, George, mate, just, just level with me. Is it better than Senna? <laughs> <laughs> but he loves That's the hard. film. He loves the film. Great. So, ladies and gentlemen, does anyone have a question? We've got a couple of roving mics that we can chuck your way. Can I just ask, for a show of hands, of who's actually seen the film? And you've seen it? You looked like you had seen it. You were smiling in recognition, yes? I thought you might have. That's good. Okay, so uh, you anything you want to ask about it? Yeah, don't be shy. Yes, the gentleman at the front, please. If we could just get a mic down. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, um, congratulations, firstly, on a, an amazing film. It was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, uh, You've already answered all my questions except for one. Was Chris? Was there 
a cut? Did you inherit a cut uh, when you first came on board, or did you start from scratch? And um, uh, were there any aspects of the story that were um, embellished for dramatic purposes, in particular the Tony Hawk sequence? Obviously, it's subjective. Stories are often subjective because they're from one person's perspective. So, w- 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 was it was it embellished in any way for, uh, for, for from Tass's side of the story? Does does that make sense? Kind of. Um, number one, no. We started from scratch, uh, and as I explained earlier, we just waded our way in and found our way through the story. As far as uh, is there anything that's manipulated or embellished the whole film? Uh, you can't make a documentary of this kind without making choices about where you're going to take the audience and wh- how you're going to you know, portray the events in these guys' lives. Uh, given that we did ask Tony Hawk to be involved and he declined, we could only take the word of everyone that we'd interviewed and take a best guess that we were being accurate about that. Uh, to say that we would embellish it, I think it's probably going too far. But to say that it's a construction rather than absolute reality is the nature of all documentaries. So I'm unabashed about that. Uh, th- th- but it's not a lie. It is the truth. Whether or not second by second it is the exact truth that happened in real time is a debatable question. But it is the truth of what happened at that time in their lives. Great. Thank you very much. That was a great question. Uh yeah, if we could go to the guy here, that would be great. Thank you. Obviously, researching the movie, you knew quite a bit about the brothers, but in making the documentary, was there anything that you found out that sort of uh, surprised you or shocked you? It's, I think it's just worth noting that the Eddie Martin, the director, he um, he grew up with the brothers, and he was a you know he was a sponsor skateboarder, and um, Another person who's in the film, Greg Stewart, who he's a videographer and he'd filmed a lot. So that was one of the great strengths of this project. We had this incredible level of real connection to the story at, at the heart. And then, uh, you know, a great team that came on board. But um, I don't know, it's probably a good question for Chris. I'm not sure about Eddie, the director, because he knew it so well. I'm not sure that there were discoveries for him. But Did he know about Uncle Willie's uh, jiu-jitsu school? Maybe not. The jiu-jitsu school and the, wa- and, and the hardcore way that they were encouraged to take up death strikes and all that, I think, was a surprise to all of us. A funny surprise. Uh, other than that, I don't think there was too much that was... Su- I mean, I found it constantly surprising, but for the rest of the team, all the Aussies who knew them, no, I don't think there was too much. Okay, a couple more questions would be wonderful before we call it a day. The lady over at the far end, thank you. Hello. Is there... <laughs> Is there anything that you found out since the ending of the film, since the film finished, that you found out afterwards through speaking to other people that you're like, oh, I wish I'd have added that in, that if you'd given the moment now, you'd have added a little extra story or a little extra moment in there? No. And I don't want to make a short answer to this. There was so much in the film that's quite difficult uh, and tragic We've seen some quite flippant moments in the film. It's very dark in the last act. Um, Terrible things happen, and the 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 brothers do terrible things themselves. Uh, It's not that it's just tragic and they go downhill. They do terrible things, and uh, 
I think having gone that far into that world and seen at least one of them come out the other side and get back on his feet and have a chance at a regular life, a happy life, I kind of closed myself to any other information about them. Uh, now that I've met Tuss, uh, and I can see that he is struggling all the time with the damage that was caused by drug use and by the injuries he took on in the sport and just by the toll of, of the events that are unfolded in this film. I kind of felt like the story's been told and there's nothing more that we could possibly want to add to it. I mean, it is an amazing story. For those that haven't seen it, it as George said, it's set in the world of skateboarding, but it has many m bigger themes of love and brotherhood and doing something just for the sake of doing something rather than doing it because you're being paid to do it. Doing it because you care about it, because you want to be inventive, because you want to renew, uh, bring, it, bring your own personality to it. All these things are very important versus people who are just doing it for money or doing it for self-aggrandizement. Uh, and I think, yeah, having gone through that, put all that into the film, packed it in there, we'd hope that there's nothing more that you really want to say about that story, about that part of that chapter of their lives or that, those chapters from their lives. Great. Maybe just one last question to finish on. Yes. A nice, bold gesture at the back there. The gentleman in the hat. Thank you. Uh, hi. Uh, I just want to ask, are you guys going to send a copy of the film to Tony Hawk? <laughs> it's out in the States, so I mean, I'd be amazed if you hadn't seen it. Yeah. Yeah, there's no no response on Twitter or anything like that. No, I haven't seen it. I've looked, no. but no, there's been no response. I don't think he'd dignify it with a response, to be honest. I mean, you have to remember, he has a he has a, a legacy to protect. The Bones Brigade film and all the Stacey Peralta connection. You know, that, that's a very big thing. In fact, I understood. This is the only thing that I have found out. And now I remember. I think the Pappas brothers appear in Bones Brigade. Really? I, I don't know. That's the one thing I did. There was a film about the legendary team, and uh, there is a moment where I understand there's a shot of the Pappas brothers. <laughs> a, a moment when Tony Hawk is talking about everything that was wrong with skateboarding at the time. Now, if that's true, <laughs> that's a hitherto unexplored moment that I'd like to see, but I don't know what his opinion is. I can only guess, and I think you can probably guess as well if you've seen all this mayhem. Great. So All This Mayhem is out now on iTunes and it's about to come out, I think, next Monday on Blu-ray and DVD. So if you haven't seen it, really try and track it down. It's fantastic. And please join me in thanking very much for joining us on the stage, Mr. George Pank and Chris King. <laughs>